you are listening to Why Can't We Have It All, a podcast focused on exploring the missing pieces in our healthcare system. This podcast is sponsored by Bowtie Medical, an innovative healthcare company that offers integrated virtual healthcare designed to keep you in control of your health and what you spend on it while lowering the cost of healthcare for you. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to this episode of our podcast, Why Can't We Have It All? I'm your host, Dr. Donish here. In today's episode, we will focus on information gaps, or I should say, interpretation gaps, in the current coronavirus pandemic, and what individuals like you and I, as members of our communities, or as employees of organizations, or owners of small businesses, need to know or act on during this stage of coronavirus. As some of our states and regions, uh, we have passed the peak of the pandemic and may be getting ready to open up in a limited and gradual fashion. And federal and the state governments issue guidelines for each step of lifting restrictions. The interpretation and understanding of those guidelines for our daily lives may require a common language interpretation or direction. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed and will continue to change the pattern of life and work in the United States and perhaps around the world. Experts who closely study the virus appear unanimous in their verdict that our health, economic, and social pain will unfortunately persist for many months to come. So perhaps we need to periodically recalibrate our expectations based on changing situations and prepare ourselves and our families for what the new normal life will look like for the next one to two years. Even if the virus recedes in the coming weeks or months, It will not be gone forever. As we may receive another punch in the fall or winter that will give us a flu and coronavirus pandemic at the same time. Therefore, in today's show, I have invited an expert in infectious diseases to have a conversation with me. I have also invited a member of our community. Let me take a moment here and welcome our guests. My first guest is distinguished professor Michael Leatherman, a Scott Inkley professor of medicine and microbiology, molecular biology, pathology, and biomedical ethics at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. Professor Leatherman is a national and international expert in infectious diseases, a resident of uh, Northeast Ohio community, and by the nature of his expertise, knows a lot more than me about the coronavirus and COVID-19 pandemic. My other distinguished guest is Mrs. Ann Cochran, a well-known artist with a large following and a resident of Northeast Ohio. Ann and her husband, Ed, have lived in Northeast Ohio for many years and have remained in social isolation for the past month or so. Welcome to our uh, podcast today, uh, Michael and Anne. Um, let me begin my questions for Professor Leatherman, uh, Michael, if, if I may, today. 
could you explain to me uh, the expected stages in the natural history of COVID-19 uh, going from asymptomatic to mild infection to severe disease and later uh, convalescence? Uh, sure. And I have a second question, which I ask is uh, really, if you want to combine them is, uh, the type of testing that are available to detect a person's position in this uh, cycle of the pandemic. Got it. All right. So COVID-19 is uh, an infection, but this particular virus called SARS-2 COVID-19 that causes COVID-19 has recently jumped from uh, animals, probably bats, to humans uh, in China in late 2019. Um, this, this virus is particularly um, nasty. Um, it first infects the lining cells of the nose and back of the mouth, um, starts to replicate more, making more baby viruses that can then be transmitted from a person in small droplets to another person, acquired also through the nose or the mouth with breathing um, or uh, or touching a contaminated surface that uh, uh, then gets into the mouth or nose if you touch your mouth or nose. Uh, and then after uh, several days, uh, most people start to get better. Some people are completely without symptoms. And one can transmit virus from an asymptomatic person, a person without symptoms, to another person in, in the first few days before symptoms develop. And those symptoms vary. Um, often there's fever, often there's a, a dry cough, often there's a peculiar loss of sense of smell uh, or a loss of taste, uh, which seems to be more common in this viral infection than in most others. And most people get better, but some people get really sick. Uh, they get so sick that they develop a serious pneumonia, uh, and sometimes this pneumonia will get better on its own, but sometimes it can cause serious uh, failure of multiple organs uh, requiring uh, hospital care, requiring uh, mechanical ventilation, and some of these people with serious uh, morbidity, serious complications of COVID-19 can die. Those people at greatest risk for serious complications of COVID-19 include the elderly, uh, include people with underlying diseases such as heart disease and in, and, uh, and, uh, in some studies, high blood pressure, um, and include people who are very overweight, the obese. Um, we still don't have known treatments that are effective against the virus. Uh, and number of studies are ongoing to identify such treatments. Now, your second question was whether or not, what kind of tests are available to make the diagnosis? Right now, the test that is used to make a diagnosis of COVID-19 is called a PCR test. It's a test for uh, the genome of the virus, an RNA genome. And the way this test is administered is a, a little probe, a swab, is placed deep into the nose, and then that swab is placed in a, in a carrier tube, and the viral particles on that swab are tested for viral genome. Uh, we may soon uh, be able to do just as well with uh, saliva 
or swabs from the back of the mouth. Uh, those data are being accumulated and, and saliva tests look pretty good. Those make a diagnosis of infection. Now, as the disease gets more severe and goes down into the lungs and the virus propagates in the lungs, sometimes the tests of the nose swab and the mouth swab are negative when the virus is even deeper in, in the airway. Um, so not everybody with this infection will have a positive test at the time of disease. We need to figure out how to test for people who have had the disease and who have recovered. And typically that's done by measuring antibodies. These are host immune responses to the virus and those are measured in blood. And numerous companies are, are developing these antibody tests. Um, they are a variable um, specificity and sensitivity, meaning specificity means that they only pick up people who've had this infection. Sensitivity means that they pick up uh, um, most everybody with this infection. So these tests are being developed and uh, we're still in the process of trying to understand which of these tests is going to be best. Thank you, Michael. Um, so now let me turn uh, the scene to uh, Ms. Ann Cochran, uh, who's going to ask uh, some of her questions from Dr. Letterman. Uh, Ann, you have the scene. Okay, hi, Dr. Letterman. Um, this is my question. There's so much out there uh, regarding mask wearing and, you know, I take walks in my neighborhood. I pass runners. Runners don't have masks. I'm not wearing a mask just because I feel that if I'm keeping the social distancing um, of six feet or more, I should be fine. What, what is the, what should we be doing when we're outside? Well, um, I think what you're doing makes sense. It's important to maintain physical distancing. I think that's a little different from social distancing. Oh, sorry. Of course, right? of course. Okay, uh, and and uh, staying apart from from others who are not part of your household makes good sense. <clears throat> it's hard to know what to make of <clears throat> concerns about runners and bikers uh, who are not masked. Um, I don't think it's in general necessary to wear a mask when one is outside, but I think it's important to wear a mask when you're inside. Okay. And uh, the masks have two purposes. One is to protect others because, uh, as I'm sure you've heard, some people can uh, be infected without symptoms and can elaborate uh, uh, small viral particles in their respiratory droplets uh, that can infect others even before they have symptoms. So you wear a mask out of respect for your neighbors, out of respect for other people in the store that you're going to when you shop for groceries to protect them. Hospital workers wear a different kind of mask called an N95 mask, which has to be fitted carefully. You can't wear one if you have a beard, so I can't wear an, an N95 mask because the idea of the N95 mask is it filters out these small particles at a level of around 95%, and that protects the wearer. And so we on the outside should not be using N95 masks because they are in short supply. And we want to make sure that our, our first line responders, our healthcare workers, our ambulance workers, our, our people who are taking care of the ill are protected uh, and have those access to those N95 masks. So I guess I've div div uh, diverted a little bit, but 
I'm not sure that you need to wear a mask when you're just walking around your neighborhood. Okay. okay. It's really important to wear a mask when you go into a store or you're in an enclosed area. And I do. However, is any mask, is a cotton covering over my mouth and nose sufficient? Well, um, it, it all depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to protect others, a cotton mask will probably do the job. Um, you'd want to wear a, um, a, a thick kind of cotton around around your face and nose, both. It's your mouth and nose that need to be need to be covered, both. Um, and a thicker cotton is better. Um, and uh, but and a, such a thing will diminish the number of particles that come out of your mouth and nose when you're breathing or talking. So I'm really protecting other people. Exactly, exactly. And it's important that we, you know, that we each play our role in, in defense against this scourge of an infection. And, yeah, uh, I was, I was, at, yeah, I was at the uh, grocery store yesterday wearing my mask. I don't wear gloves. Should I be wearing gloves? <laughs> if you well, can find them, um, you can't even find gloves. I mean, yeah. I don't know where to get, everybody's out of them, you know. Right, right. <laughs> Well, um, the, the, one of the things that a mask also does for you is it keeps you from touching your mouth or your nose with your uh, hand. Right. And it's, it, it is the case that this virus can stick around on surfaces that we call fomites. And if you touch those things in principle uh, and then touch your mouth and nose, you can transmit that virus if it's present in high enough concentration. Uh, that way. So if you have gloves, it's not a terrible idea. It's not a bad idea. But the critical thing is if you're not wearing gloves, that you wash your hands frequently um, and that you not touch your face with your exactly. hands. I understand. We have to change our habits. Most of us do all sorts of strange things uh, with our hands. Yeah. No, I get a scratch on my, I, whatever. You just, you, you, it's unavoidable at times. Right. So it right. leads to the next question. When I get home with my groceries, do I wipe them down with a bleach solution? And I mean, I do wash my hands vigorously. I mean, they're so dry, but you know, there's so much that, it's 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 overwhelming. It really so, is. And you know, he, here's a, a special secret that I'm going to tell you, and it's absolutely critical that you don't tell my mother. Okay. The secret is that I don't know everything. <laughs> Just don't tell my mom, and I don't know the answer to your, oh, with your wiping down of groceries. I know. It's... If you're anxious, fine. Soap and water, or uh, or uh, some Clorox bleach uh, wipes. If you're not anxious, you know, it, it all depends on your level of comfort with uncertainty. I don't okay. know the answer. Oh, I understand. I, I, and I appreciate it. Uh, just an, do just I have time? my mom, okay? I won't, I won't, I won't. And I know your mother. No. Um, <laughs> is it safe to fly? And if we do have to fly, I mean, what, when is that going to, you know? It's a great question. And the answer is it's not clear. Um, closed, closed spaces um, can have uh, uh, particles or even aerosols. Uh, uh, some people argue that the virus can, can be present within aerosols as well. Those are particles even smaller than the, the, the uh, respiratory droplets that we we're talking about. Um, if in enclosed spaces, such things may stick around for a while. Now there is circulation in airplanes and there is, uh, so it's not entirely a closed space, but I don't know how safe it is to fly in an airplane nowadays. Um, I 
Uh, you recognize that if you're going on an airplane, if things are crowded, which they're not much now, you're right. going to be surrounded by other people as you go through security checks. And so people have been uneasy about that. I will tell you that some airlines are now requiring that their passengers, uh, the first one did that today, that was JetBlue, requiring that their passengers all wear masks. Um, so you're going to see a change in the way we do things on a regular basis. And as to how safe it is to, to fly or when it's going to be safe to fly, I just don't know. Yeah. And that's going to vary as well by the prevalence of infection in the community from which and to which you're flying. So, but one question I'm going to ask both of you, uh, and, uh, and you alluded to this, uh, because we are going to boot be in this uh, for the next maybe two or three years, as some experts predict, uh, that until the coronavirus settles into the human microbiome, will take up to about four years. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your predictions of, or your expectations of when we can go to sit in a restaurant and have dinner or do some of the normal things that we were doing, and what would be the new normal for, uh, for us, both uh, you know, from your, I would be interested in hearing both your perspectives as the citizens of our community. Well, if I may say, I, I'm a performer. I sing in closed venues of 500 or more seats. You know, what's going to, when can we get back to that? Um, exactly. You know, yeah, I mean, we'll that's... to hear your voice again, Anne. <laughs> well, thank you. Not right now. But I, um, I mean, that's my question. This is my, my career, my life. And, and I also like to go out to eat in, in restaurants. And, uh, you know, so maybe the professor can shed some light on that. But it's very frustrating for me and for my colleagues and, and uh, other artists in this, in this, uh, in this business. So, um, Firuz and Ann, these are good questions and, and, and good concerns. And uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty. As you know, different states are relaxing the rules at different paces, and uh, the success or failure of these uh, these uh, relaxations will become apparent soon. I think you're right, Farouz, when you say that that there's uh, normal is going to look different, yeah. um, and until we have a vaccine that can be applied to protect everybody. Um, we're going to have to live our lives a little bit differently. What this means for performers like Anne is, uh, is probably something very, very different. What this means for universities and schools is probably something very, very different. What this means for restaurants is probably something very, very different. We won't be able to, to uh, uh, be part of the hustle and bustle of a crowded restaurant uh, without some degree of physical distancing that uh, will be variably protective depending upon how much infection is in the community. So things are going to change and we're going to need guidance by expert epidemiologists. And by the way, I am not an epidemiologist and can't claim expertise in this area, but we're really going to need these folks to, to guide us and help us decide how to open up and where. To build on our previous discussion, I'd like to summarize some of the key points. Uh, as some of our communities pass beyond the first peak of pandemic and reopening orders are uh, being issued, the directions on how to open our communities and our businesses have surfaced for individuals and employers. 
For individuals, I think the dialogue between Anne and Dr. Leatherman covered some of the key issues. For employers, however, the question of how they can safely open their businesses and the role of testing in it must be addressed on a case-by-case. Let's review the testing issue one more time. Um, As Dr. Leatherman indicated, there are two types of tests. The first test, which detects the antigen or the virus, uh, and if it is done extensively, would allow to measure the prevalence of infection in that community. So in a simple term, the more people get tested, the more we know who has been infected, regardless of whether they have had symptoms or not. The second set of tests are antibody tests. Antibody tests would show whether a person who is exposed with or without symptoms has gained immunity against COVID-19 or coronavirus. Two types of antibodies are measured in the blood of that person, IgG and IgM, immunoglobulin G, immunoglobulin M. The antibody test could be done through a method called ELISA, uh, which is mostly done in the formal laboratories and would require a formal blood run. The second type of antibody tests that are about to appear in the U.S. market are called the rapid test or the lateral flow chromatography assays, lateral flow in simple. These tests are similar to testing our blood sugar that involves pricking the fingertip and dropping off the blood on a little cassette and observe the change of the color on the strip of the cassette. These tests could measure IgG or IgM or both against coronavirus. It is generally accepted at this stage that when a person is positive for both IgG and IgM on the rapid test, that person currently has antibodies against coronavirus and therefore is immune to COVID-19 at that time. The challenge, however, remains that the issue of duration of the immunity of that person is unknown with any of the available tests. And the only solution seems to be repetition of the antibody test. Further, we do not know whether the positive person could get reinfected again. These are not the problems of these tests, per se, but shortcomings of our current state of knowledge about coronavirus and its COVID-19 disease. We don't know how long the first exposure would create immunity and whether the virus has the ability to reinfect that person again. Until when we have more information about the natural history of COVID-19 coronavirus, those questions, I'm afraid, are going to remain unanswered. However, until we know more about the COVID-19 natural history, which could translate to appearance of next generations of tests, it appears that the use of rapid antibody tests is a reasonable place to start for employers to test the immunity of their employees if their community has surpassed the recommended threshold of prevalence of COVID-19, which on itself 
needs to be handled by extensive testing of that community. So if I want to summarize this, a positive antibody test in a person within a community that has surpassed the threshold would indicate that person is immune to COVID-19 and could return to work safely. Therefore, it is expected at this stage of pandemic, repeat testing of people found to be immune or the employees could be done or should be done periodically, as it could help determine how long a person is immune. Therefore, given the complexity of the situation, it seems that there is no single prescription that would satisfy the needs of every employer. And therefore, every employer must integrate the guidelines issued by its state uh, and or regional governments with advice from a local healthcare organization or a public health professional to decide on how to open their businesses safely by finding answers to the questions of A, how and when the testing should be done, B, how to allow immune employees to return to work, C, how often the immune employees should be tested. With that, I'm afraid uh, that's all the time we have for today. I'm sure we will revisit the issue in the near future. I'm your host, Dr. Donish Gary. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Until next time, stay safe and be well. You've been listening to Why Can't We Have It All? The Missing Pieces in Our Healthcare. This podcast is brought to you by Bowtie Medical. Visit us on the web at www.wcwha.com, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and send all your questions and comments to info at wcwha.com. Again, that's info at wcwha.com.